Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there. I'm Nathan Hobson, your host for this episode of the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, in which I'll be talking with Dr. Karim Yassar about his book, Electrified Voices, How the Telephone, Phonograph, and Radio Shaped Modern Japan, 1868-1945. Electrified Voices explores the soundscapes of modernity and modern soundscapes in Japan. In this book, out from Columbia University Press in 2018, Dr. Yassar argues that modern technologies of sound reproduction and transmission have had profound and often underappreciated social, economic, and political effects. Observing that the materialities of media transform people, institutions, and societies, Yassar traces the early histories of sound reproduction in modern Japan and their consequences. Electrified Voices examines the development of media technologies, including the telegraph and telephone, phonograph, broadcast radio, and film and their attendant oralities, oralities, and effects on language, nation, the performing arts, and even intellectual property law. As Yassar shows, sound reproduction changed language and attitudes about language, uh, collapsed time and space, and shaped both individual and collective identities and practices. The impact of these technologies is indispensable to a clear understanding of modernity, and Yassar's book is a welcome contribution to the scholarly literature on not just Japan, but histories of media and modernity as well. Okay, Dr. Yassar, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm uh, looking forward to talking about your book. So one of the uh, sort of key points, I guess, to start with is that your book uh, uses a number of case studies, uh, the beginnings of the telegraph, the telephone, the phonograph, the radio and sound film in Japan, as you put it. Um, why did you choose these technologies? And I guess why the beginnings of these technologies in Japan? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, I always welcome an opportunity to talk about uh, my work and especially you know, something that I've been working on for so long. Um, in terms of this particular project and the choice of the technologies that I wanted to look at, I mean, Obviously, one of the things that unifies them all is uh, that you know that they're sound technologies, or in the case of the telegraph, not um, a sound technology per se, but a kind of proto sound or sound adjacent technology. Um, and the reasons that, or the reason or reasons that I chose these particular uh, technologies and media is that um, the period during which they were introduced. Uh, took place or that period is a sort of manageable kind of span of time. So we're really going from about the 1860s, 1870s, uh, up until the, about the 1930s. And the book goes a little bit past the 1930s to the end of the Pacific war. Um, but these technologies were sort of introduced one after the other in, in, I wouldn't say in rapid succession, but in, in a certain kind of progression, um, so that allowed me to create a, a kind of a timeline and a narrative. Um, so they're all sound technologies. They uh, were introduced over, um, you know, a period of time that that made for a manageable narrative. And then 
uh, I think in terms of the cultural uses of the technologies, the, the things that also make them particularly interesting for me are what they do in terms of transcending the boundaries of time and space so that you're uh, transmitting sound across space, but you're also um, recording it uh, and preserving it across time. And that ability to play with time and space um, uh, in a way that, for example, I don't talk about public address systems in this book, because even though that is a sound technology, uh, and even though public address systems do, did play um, an important role during the period that I study, uh, you know, they're, they, they're for use within a sort of local range of, of space, right? Uh, and, and they're generally used in real time uh, to make announcements. And so for the purposes of what I was trying to do here in terms of looking at the, uh, the ways that cultural production were affected by the technologies, these were the ones that made the most sense in terms of the, the issues that I was most interested in including uh, language reform and various questions of intellectual property and questions of performance and things like that. Uh, so they were, you know, for those reasons, they were, I think, the most logical things to look at. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And thank you for uh, giving that in-depth explanation. Um, and I guess it leads me to uh, the, the question of how is it that you became interested in sound. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of interest in uh, visual culture and the visuality of modernity. And I think you're sort of um, not not in a, in a negative way, but pushing back a little bit on the overprivileging, perhaps, uh, of, the, of the visual in, in our understanding of history. Um, how did you become interested in this, this perspective of looking at the, the soundscapes of modernity? Well, actually, I was interested in sound before I even got interested in Japan. Um, I was a music major at Wesleyan University, and I, uh, when I was there, I focused on ethnomusicology and on experimental and electronic music. I'm an um, inveterate gadget lover and uh, music lover, and so I was always really interested at, at, in the, the places where those things intersect, uh, technology, sound. And what have you, um, and so that was my, uh, you know, that was my undergraduate education. And then I went to Japan on the JET program. Um, hadn't actually studied any Japanese before that. And um, actually, my first stay in Japan on the JET program wasn't entirely um, pleasant in the sense that I got sick with mono and I spent like a month in the hospital. Uh, and, you know, I came back to the U.S. and was just sort of, um, you know, thinking about what else to do with my life. Uh, and even though that first experience in Japan hadn't been that great, um, something just kept pulling me back. And so I applied uh, for a Mombusho, what was then called Mombusho scholarship uh, to study at Tokyo Gejutsu Daigaku at the National University of Arts and Music, where I continued studying ethnomusicology um, with a professor who's now retired named Tsuge Genichi. Um, but the more time that I spent in Japan, so I was, you know, uh, studying at the university, my Japanese was getting better. Um, and the better that my Japanese got, the more I got interested in 
looking at other types of cultural production in Japan. And so then I applied to um, do a PhD in Japanese literature at Columbia um, and got accepted. And then I went there and moved into the study of literature. But um, this, you know, prior sort of life, uh, I guess, as a, as a student of music and of sound, um, that was always still kind of in the back of my mind. And uh, so when I submitted my dissertation prospectus, um, it was actually on a very different topic. I wanted to study the Shinkankaka writers like uh, Yoko Mitsurichi and Kawabata Yasunari. And um, so that was my original you know, plan for, for the dissertation. Um, but then I went to to Japan to do research. Uh, I was at Waseda University, and I, um, you know, as I as I went through the material, I started to wonder really whether I had that much um, new to say about that particular topic. Um, which is not to say that the topic has been exhausted, uh, but I I just wasn't sure, you know, whether my interests and and what I had to say about it would would be you know as valuable as i would hope um you know the project would be especially considering that i would be investing years of my life in it um and then so i started kind of rethinking things and um the dissertation included some you know there was there was a chapter about shinkankaku in the dissertation but i expanded it more broadly to questions of media and technology in terms of literary production and then after finishing the dissertation, then I started, you know, f- shifting my focus uh, more narrowly, I suppose, on this period and on on sound technologies. And so it was kind of like coming full circle in that I had sort of traversed these different disciplines. I'd studied uh, music and sound, and then I'd studied literature and then other kinds of cultural production, cultural history. I'd also gotten very interested in cinema at that time at in graduate school. Um, and so it was in a sense coming full circle back to, you know, my earliest interests, uh, you know, as an undergraduate, um, and bringing those back, trying to sort of, uh, you know, salvage them, I guess is, is one way of putting it, but bringing them back into the work that I was doing, uh, in my graduate study and then, you know, turning that into the book. That's uh, that's a really fascinating backstory. That I guess you know, for me, having uh, read the book without knowing that, it really uh, helps me to understand some of the, um, I, and I and I say this in a, in a really positive sense, sort of some of the eclecticism of the way that you approach this. No, the way that you approach the issue, because I think you're you're not um, you're you're not sort of tied down to one sort of narrow lens, right? And you're seeing things from many different perspectives, which I actually found to be a tremendously uh, useful way to attack something as large as the question of a modern soundscape. Um, So I found that really enlightening for myself. Um, I wanted to uh, just ask one more question before we dive into the content of the individual chapters. Um, You make this point that the effects of mechanical reproduction on the voice are essentially uh, dialectical, right? That there's sort of two sides that are in tension with each other. And I think this is really important for uh, listeners and readers to understand the kind of arguments that you're making in the book. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that, I think that'd be really helpful. Well, so one of the things that I think is very interesting about um, 
you know, mechanical reproduction. I mean, going back to Benjamin's uh, seminal article about the, you know, the the, age, the the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. I mean, he was talking about artifacts, um, generally of visual or plastic arts, and uh, the, the the sense that the originals have uh, that kind of oratic charge. That once you have, once you start reproducing them. Uh, through mechanical means, it's it's lost, um, uh, and I'm not you know I'm not doing a great job of of encapsulating the argument with all of its nuance. But for my purposes, let's let's leave it at that, and then move on to the uh, to what happens with the voice. Because if you look at the work of people like Mladen Dolar and um, and to to a lesser extent Slavoj Žižek, uh, you know the the so-called Ljubljana school, um, but but also other sort of psychoanalytically trained, psychoanalytically informed theorists, um, uh, there is this sense that the voice, the, the disembodied voice, the akusmetra that, uh, that also Michel Chion writes about, that it has a certain kind of, um, I, I'm not sure they ever use the word aura, but it has a certain kind of you know, psychic and libidinal economy uh, around it, so that when we hear it, and especially when we hear a voice without seeing the source of the voice or the source of the sound, that that there is a certain kind of uncanniness that's that's operative there. Um, and so, on the one hand, there is, I think, certainly something to be said for a live voice, right? That if you hear, uh, particularly if you hear like a singer, a performer, without um, you know, even without amplification say like uh, a leader recital, you know, in a, in a small space, uh, totally acoustic. Um, it, it does certainly have a, a certain presence uh, and, and acoustical properties that you're not going to get even from the most expensive um, sound reproduction technology, the best speakers or what have you. Um, but at the same time, when you do have this technology of reproduction and particularly reproduction of of sounds without necessarily knowing what their origins are, uh, or not, you know, or, I mean, you do know in literal terms, if you want to be literal minded about it, of course, you know what the origin is, but you're hearing the voices of people who are not there. And you're hearing the voices of people who may actually be long dead. And that lens, the acousmatic, you know, the acousmatic voice, the acousmetry, it lends it a certain kind of, um, uh, spectral quality, you might say. And so that's something that I'm very interested in. So trying to sort of think about, uh, think about that without essentializing that, that quality, that acousmatic quality, but at the same time, recognizing that living embodied voices also, um, have a, a different kind of oratic charge, I guess you could say. Yeah, that's, um, I feel like this is a very strange conversation to be having on a podcast. I don't know if that's just me. Uh, but um, yes, thank you. I think that's really uh, important, right? That there's these two sides to the effects of mechanical production. And while I don't think you're uh, arguing with Benjamin, I think that it, you, you've sort of taken it uh, you know, a step further by, by seeing the uh, the way a, a sort of separate effect that I don't think was necessarily as clear, um, you know, as you say, Benjamin's talking about um, visual and plastic art. So maybe that's a difference. Um, okay. So with that uh, sort of out of the way, um, I'm still reeling from the whole 
podcast problem. Um, So I'll try and jump right into the chapters and get over that. Um, So chapter one is called Vocal Cords and Telephone Wires, Orality in Japan, Old and New. Um, And in this chapter, you look at the ways that the telegraph and telephone transform orality in in Meiji Japan. Um, Could you first tell us a little bit about orality prior to Meiji um, so we can sort of get a, a baseline and then about the impact of these two technologies? Okay, so um, I think one of the main interlocutors in that first chapter is Karatani Kojin, who argues in the origins of modern Japanese literature that um, the encounter with the West during the Meiji period, it uh, occasioned the, 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 the embrace, the arrival and the embrace of, of uh, when he uses the Derridian term phonocentrism, where um, the sense of the, you know, the grammatology, the textuality, the textual play and everything that had been so uh, central to, uh, certainly to the, the production and the consumption of literature um, in pre-modern Japan, that, that that had been, you know, sort of displaced by this phonocentrism that he identifies as having um, Western cultural roots. Um, and I, you know, and and it's, I mean, it goes without saying that that is a that was a pioneering and very very important work, um, and uh, it it's been very important for me and a lot of other people in terms of shaping our thinking about the formation of of modern Japanese literature as a discursive space. But I, I that particular aspect of the argument always kind of. Um, made me feel a little bit of resistance because as somebody who had also studied, uh, has also studied traditional performing arts in Japan, pre-modern music and, you know, pre-modern narrative uh, traditions. Um, And as, you know, as somebody who, who studied Japanese as a non-native speaker, you know, studied Japanese as a, as a foreign language and was uh, sort of bowled over by the incredible richness of onomatopoeia and other kinds of sound symbolism in Japanese, um, I, I, I sort of had to question that argument because it seemed to me that there were, uh, that there was an intense, you know, kind of attentiveness to orality, to spoken language alongside a very rich uh you know, articulated, developed, uh, you know, textual tradition and writing systems that were used in a lot of different, uh, very creative ways. I mean, in terms of playing with, uh, you know, different sound values for, for imported uh, Chinese characters and, and then, you know, developing uh, the, the syllabic script as well, or scripts alongside the, the Chinese characters. Um, so it seemed to me that he was kind of giving short shrift to uh, a very sort of rich traditions of orality and attentiveness to spoken language, and in many ways a privileging of spoken language. I mean, the whole argument against, you know, the whole argument is that phonocentrism is this uh, sort of privileging of spoken language based on, um, you know, certain kinds of, of uh, assumptions that come from you know, both from Greek philosophy and from uh, from Christianity, but uh, looking at Japan and pre-modern traditions in Japan, which have nothing to do with those cultural uh, antecedents. You know, you know, Japan has its own uh, cultural, indeed civilizational um, 
history that that that's rooted more in China than you know anything having to do with Christianity or or or, or Greece, ancient Greece. Um, that you know that there was this uh, this this focus on orality and indeed privileging of orality. If you look at, for example, the the notion of kotodama, that was articulated by the Kokugaku scholars um, in, during the Edo period. Uh, this idea of kotodama that that the spoken word has a, a kind of spiritual efficacy that the written characters do not. Um, it it occurred to me that you know there was a, a a certain kind of indigenous phonocentrism at work in Japan as well, and that was the the main argument that I was trying to make in the first half of the chapter, and then in the second half of the chapter, I um, talk about the ways in which the telegraph and the telephone just kind of fed into what was already there in terms of a fascination with spoken language and with the ways in which people perform and, and react to spoken language. Um, and, and that's what I do with, you know, with the, with the second half of the chapter. And then also in the second half, uh, talking about the telephone, I, uh, I shift focus a little bit to, to questions of, of temporality and of, uh, convenience and time saving and modernity and these things that we sort of associate with with the telephone, and focus instead on the ways in which the telephone was actually uh, a nuisance, an intrusion, and a waste of time, and uh, and talk about some of the ways in which people still you know coveted the telephone as an object, still liked talking to one another on the telephone, despite the fact that it wasn't really time saving, it wasn't really convenient. Um, but they did it anyway, and I think part of it was because of the pleasure, uh, just the pleasure of being able to hear other people's voices at a distance and have that that kind of conversation. Yeah, that's um, one of the examples you used was what's called the yobidashi denma. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, because I think it illustrates your point right there really well. Yeah, so that was a system where... Um, you would basically make an appointment to have a telephone conversation with another person. And, uh, well, either you could do it as an appointment or you could just try to summon them immediately um, through a telegraph. So you would send the telegraph to the other party and it would be delivered. And then, you know, if it was urgent, if it were urgent, they would then rush to the telephone uh, station, uh, in, you know, usually in the telegraph office and, um, uh, take your call or call you back if you had a phone. I mean, this was necessitated by the fact that telephones and telephone lines were quite expensive. So you really needed to be, uh, kind of upper class, uh, or very minimum upper middle class to have a telephone, but that didn't stop people from wanting to use the phone. Um, so you know you could uh, you could sort of call you could you could send this this summons basically uh, by telegraph to the other party, and either ask them to come right away or or you know make an appointment for an appointed time, and then just sort of meet and talk on the phone that way. Um, so clearly this was this was not cheap. This was not um, fast and easy. It was not con- convenient or anything like that. And also even if you had you know, telephone in your home, uh, and and the other party had a telephone in their home. Sometimes the the lines would be you know so overwhelmed that it would take a long time uh, just to get through to whoever you were trying to call. Um, 
But despite all of this, and especially if you look at the um, the statistics of the of the yobidashi, um, you know they 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 just kept increasing year after year, and uh, they were they were very very popular, um, despite the fact that uh, they weren't actually particularly you know easy or convenient, um, and so that that I took as as a pretty strong piece of evidence that people had other reasons for wanting to talk on the phone rather than just uh, the convenience. Yeah. And that, that strikes me as, as something really important. I mean, I guess I had, um, before I read your book, I had sort of thought about that as a kind of an almost performativity of modernity. But I think your point about the, the sort of um, pleasure of the voice itself and of that communication was something I just had never really considered. Um, and so that was a, particularly just thinking about the the inconvenience of being summoned and the expense of using the telephone and why would you do that? It hadn't occurred to me that the you know, oral communication was actually a big part of that. And it just, it was one of those sort of, you know, uh, scales from the eyes kind of moments I had reading the book. Um, and I think it it uh, it gets to this sort of larger question of, um, you know, kind of whether we have the soundscape of modernity as sound or as noise, right? Whether it's this sort of uh, pleasant uh, or whether it's intrusive and somehow grating and, un- and unpleasant. And there's um, a lot of uh, pleasure that people derive from it. And there's also a lot of resistance to the encroachment upon um privacy and uh, quiet and the sort of uh, the loss of a sense of uh, distance that that these new technologies, uh, which were collapsing space, as you very rightly point out, uh, brought with them. Um, So I guess uh, if it's all right with you, I'd like to then uh, move on to chapter two, where you think about the uh, phonograph and the significance of Western music. Um, And this chapter is called Sound and Sentiment. And you write that it's important to understand that, quote, the first incursions of Western modernity into the Japanese soundscape came not in the form of Western machines, but in the form of Western music, which offered the perfect medium with which to forge the soundtrack of national indoctrination. Um, And I think this gets to something that you began to to really uh, dig into in chapter one, which is the significance of sound to nation building. Um, And you point out that sound structures the the ways that we perceive time and space. Um, And that's a big part of understanding ourselves as a nation. So what what role did the phonograph and Western music play in the early uh, structuring of Japan's modernity and nationhood? Well, it's, uh, you know, there were a lot of different ways in which uh, Western music came into uh, Japan during the Meiji period. Um, the The phonograph was, was later than some of the others uh, in that, um, Although there were demonstrations of the early phonographs done in Japan, um, sound recordings didn't really become uh, kind of widely consumed commodities until the invention of the gramophone uh, disc in in the early 20th century. Um, and then they didn't really become that widespread even until quite, you know, a, a few, maybe let's say a decade later. Um but but music did come in through other ways, through other means. I mean, you had uh, sort of visiting performers, visiting foreign performers. Uh, that was that was one way. Um, but you actually had the importation of Western music through 
the educational system uh, through the, the work of one figure that I look at named Sawa Shuji, uh, who, who I think is familiar to people in a lot of different, you know, working on, you know, different areas of Meiji history because he had his, his uh, you know, his hands in a lot of different pots, I guess you could say. He was, uh, you know, he was an educational coordinator in Taiwan. And, um, but, but one of the things that he was most instrumental in doing was, was introducing Western musical education to Japan. And he had studied at Bridgewater, what was then Bridgewater Teachers College in Massachusetts. Uh, and it was there that he got to meet, um, and in fact, he became an assistant to Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, and he was uh, one of the first people to use the prototype telephone in Bell's lab, uh, along with some other Japanese students who were uh, in Massachusetts, mainly at Harvard at that time. Um, and I actually start the book with the anecdote of them going to Bell's lab and trying the phone out for the first time, uh, which actually made Japanese the second language after English to travel across a phone line. Um, but he was he was instrumental in in introducing Western music uh, into the not just into Japanese society, but very crucially into the educational curriculum, so that uh, it was the case that then. Japanese traditional music was actually not a part of the educational curriculum, Western style music. I mean, I, I hesitate to sort of traffic in these terms like Japanese music and Western music because there's, you know, West, music is, is one of these things. I mean, any kind of cultural production, it quickly gets kind of domesticated in various ways. It gets hybridized and and things like that. So I don't want to you know, sort of make this case that there are these sort of essential categories of Western music and Japanese music. Um, but you did get the importation of Western scales of, of diatonic harmony and um, Western rhythmic structures, which tend to be fairly uh, um, simple, I would say, compared to, you know, some of the, the, the rhythmic structures used in, in Japanese music in the sense that Western music tends to have, you know, very regular uh, tempi, you know, regular speed, regular rhythms. And very often it's just, you know, a typical 4-4 four, four rhythm, one two three four one two three four which, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of sublime music that's been composed in, in a 4-4 four, four time signature, but it's not particularly complex. Um, and, and it's so simple, in fact, that a lot of Western music, when it was first performed in Japan, um, it just made everybody think that well, this is like military music. This is martial music because it sounds like marching, you know, one, two, three, four, one, two, one, two. Um, and so part of the reason why Western music became part of the, the educational curriculum to, at the expense of, not alongside, but at the expense of Japanese traditional music was that uh, it was seen as a, as a better vehicle, as a better sonic vehicle for, uh, the creation of a modern nation state, uh, you know, the, the creation of a modern national consciousness and also the creation of a, of a somewhat, you know, kind of militaristic state with, uh, with imperial ambitions, uh, you know, not a, not necessarily a peace loving state, but, but a state with a strong military, uh, and one that would not remain confined to Japan's, uh, national Borders, um, so that was that was really the first stage was was through the educational system and actually then making Western 
musical, the, the idiom of, of Western music, um, really actually kind of the standard and the norm. And that, that effort was so successful that uh, when, you know, a different kind of a much more uh, aggressive kind of militarism took hold in the 1930s, um, when authorities tried to you know, just kind of banish uh, first any Western music that wasn't, you know, from the Axis powers, any kind of, Ger- you know, anything that wasn't German or Italian. Um, and then later they, ju- they just really wanted to kind of, you know, put a clamp on, on anything that wasn't really traditional Japanese music. But it was hard for them to do that. I mean, the, the music, the recordings were already in circulation and, um, and Japanese traditional music had already been relegated into uh, like a subculture in Japan, which, you know, when you think about it is, is remarkable. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's how it played out. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's really interesting. The idea that, you know, Japanese music was so quickly sort of put by the wayside. And I think your connection with, uh, both the educational system and the sort of, um, nationalistic slash militaristic uh, uh, possibilities that we're seeing in, in Western music is a really interesting one. Um, in uh, in the next chapter, chapter three, you sort of, uh, you continue to think a little bit about the phonograph and you shift gears to thinking about how the phonograph um, altered the transient nature of sound itself, um, transforming it into something that could be preserved and archived, right? And then, of course, also with that, commodified. Um, and you write about the effects that had on society. So the preservation and commodi- commodification of sound transformed the nature of performance. Uh, the introduction of recording technologies on then, of course, reverberates throughout the arts. Um, and you write that, uh, quote, modern technologies, which have often been thought to go hand in hand with modern forms, became vectors for traditional arts and even for traditional lifeways and reactionary ideologies, end quote, on the one hand, and that, again, quoting you, when sound could be recorded, it also meant that the ephemeral aspects of artistic practice, such as nuances of performance and even the timbre of the voice, could be fixed and therefore reified and commodified. So I guess this is going back to this, you know, another a, a kind of dialectical tension between uh, two aspects of the modern technologies of the voice. So could you tell us about how that works out in the performing arts with new technologies of reproduction, um, specifically with some of the case studies you use in this chapter? Sure. Um, so I think the, the central case study uh, in that chapter is the Tochuken Kumoemon case, um, which is, I, I've seen it referred to as the, the most famous copyright case in Japanese legal history. And indeed, many of the sources that I consulted about the case were actually written by legal scholars, um, of which I am not one. <laughs> so I, I did feel uh, a little bit of imposter syndrome wading into this topic. But um, what I was interested in was not so much the, you know, copyright law per se, although that is that is an interesting topic in its own right. But the ways in which you know, understanding of performance intersected with copyright law at the time and, and in fact, you know, transformed both the contemporary understandings of performance and of copyright law simultaneously, and particularly through this case. Um, 
I don't I, th- I don't want to sort of uh, bore your listeners with, uh, you know, a full rec- recapitulation of what happened in the case. I mean, it's it's been written about, well, in my book, of course, but also in other places. And and you can find a, a summary. Um, but to make a long story short, uh, uh, Tochu Ken Kumoimon is a, a Naniwabushi performer. Naniwabushi is a, a sort of narrative ballad art form. Uh, kind of traditional uh, with working class associations, uh, or at least at the time that I'm studying it, it, it had these kinds of working class associations, but also a certain kind of association with, um, with nationalism. Uh, so kind of working class national art form or nationalist art form. Um, and uh, so this, this, this performer Kumoimon, he was uh, really one of the superstars of the age, and he signed a contract to make a recording uh, with a record company, which was owned and run by uh, a German uh, businessman, Werdermann, Richard Werdermann. Um, so he signed this contract to to make this recording, um, but at this time in Japan, there was no law, copyright law, protecting recordings from uh, being copied and then sold. That is to say, there was no copyright protections against piracy. So if, you know, you made, you produced a record, um, the next day, a different uh, record company could basically press a copy of your record and sell it at a lower price. So undercut you and make money, uh, you know, and they're not paying for the recording costs or anything like that. They're just taking your recording, they're copying it, and they're selling it and and cutting into your sales. Um, and the only advantage you have in that case is that the sound quality of your recording uh, is going to be a little bit better because they're copy, in the, in the process of copying, there's going to be degradation of the sound quality. But in terms of anything else, you know, it's going to be cheaper. The pirated copy is going to be cheaper and uh, your economic existence is going to be, uh, in many cases, threatened by this. So uh, Verdemann, he, you know, he signed this contract. It was supposed to be an exclusive contract. And um, then a different record company, a pirate record company, made a copy and started selling. And, and because Kumoimon was such a superstar, um, you know the the record sold very well, but uh, the original sold well, but the the copy sold even better. Uh, and so Verderman, who uh, was coming, you know, from a different set of assumptions, he sued um, the record company that was pirating uh, the record. And first he won the case, and then the record company, the pirate company, appealed, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court of Japan ultimately decided that no, you cannot copyright recordings. Um, and I'm not going to get into the whole kind of tortured uh, legal justifications that the, the Supreme Court made for that decision, but, but suffice it to say that they really paid no heed and really ascribed no value to the nuances of, of the performance, that, that all they really cared about was the fact that um, – Kumoimon was reading uh, the, the script. The words that he was saying uh, were were already pre-composed, uh, and he was improvising a melody. And they didn't care that that melody was improvised and something creative. And they certainly didn't care about the 
uh, the nuances and the subtleties of his performance, his delivery. And they just thought none of that stuff, it's all just ephemeral. It's not copyrightable. The only thing that's copyrightable is, you know, uh, a melody that's been written down. Improvised melodies don't count. It has to be written down. It has to be inscribed. And the argument that I make about that is that, you know, they're basing that judgment on the assumptions of a prior age in which inscription, in which writing was the privileged medium, right? That was the medium of, of, of historiography, is the medium of the, of the law, of, uh, of, of government, of, of, you know, pretty much anything. If it was going to be serious, it had to be set down in writing. And so they're applying that same kind of logic here. Um, but ultimately, so even though the Supreme Court decided that it wasn't copyrightable, um, about 10 years later, 10, 11 years later, uh, the Diet did pass a law uh, that, that afforded uh, protection, copyright protection to recordings per se. So not just to the underlying melody, not just to um, you know, lyrics or whatever, but to recordings themselves. But as I you know, say in the book, um, the justification for that was not a matter of finally coming to some sort of recognition about the value of the nuances of performance so much as it was that um, the economic interests of the record producers, you know, so the economic interests of capital uh, finally brought about uh, a, a legislative change that, that uh you know, gave the, the copyright protection to recordings. But that case of, of Kumoimon, um, especially in terms of the legal justifications for why performances shouldn't be copyrightable, uh, it does, I think, sort of reveal a lot about the thinking of the time in terms of, you know, the value of performance versus the value of something that can be inscribed and how um, that thinking over time would, would change. Um, and not necessarily by the time that the copyright laws were changed. I mean, that wasn't the justification. They would, you know, it would take longer for that kind of, um, I think, insight to 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 sort of arise. Um, but uh, the the discourses of the time, I think, do do sort of show how that understanding of performance is is on the way to being recognized. The value of performance is on the way to being recognized. Yeah, and I thought I, one of the things that struck me in your answer there um, is the the Supreme Court's sort of referentiality to an, an age of of writing, um, in particular because you know recordings are also a kind of writing. They're you know sort of literally inscribing something, uh, inscribing the sound in this case into the disc. And I thought that was you know uh, part of if I'm understanding correctly your uh, chapter title, "The Grain in the Groove," um, and so that that this sort of cognitive dissonance between sort of what constitutes writing, I guess, in, in a sense, what constitutes inscription in that sense was seemed to me an interesting sort of aspect of what's going on there. Um, yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's, but for some reason they, they, they didn't quite um, somehow the, the inscriptive aspect or the inscription aspect of the recording didn't quite occur to them. Um, they, they were so, locked into the idea of something that was visual, right? Inscriptions that were, that were visible uh, as being the only thing that counted that, that, you know, they, they couldn't sort of make that leap uh, to 
uh, to, to the kind of inscription that happens on a on a disc, for example. Yeah, and I think you make the point in this chapter that, um, uh, just to quote you here, J- Japanese originally conceived of sound recording as the oral equivalent of photography. Um, and again, there's this sort of question of what constitutes writing, what's reproduction, what's visual versus oral. And this, you know, you're, you're I think, doing a really nice job of, of bringing out the um, sort of transition of uh, consciousness and understanding of uh, sort of an epistemological shift in sort of how we understand what these um, different, uh, for lack of a better word, um, objects, voice, etc., versus the objects uh, or products, the recordings themselves, uh, or, or photographs, um, how they're being conceived in society. And also, as you know, I think you do a nice job here of thinking about how they're conceived in the law and in intellectual property. Um, and in chapter four, again, you shift uh, you shift uh, gears again here in chapter four to think about um, as uh, radio. Um, chapter four is called "Imagining the Wireless Community," um, and radio begun, begins broadcasting in Japan in the spring of 1925. Um, and you look in this chapter at the first decade or so of radio in Japan, um, paying a lot of attention to the political uses of the new medium on the one hand. Um, and, and I thought in a really interesting direction you took this was the closely related issue of sort of sound and the body. And you argue that radio becomes a conscious tool for, quote, consolidating the subjective presence uh, and reach of the imagined community of the nation state, end quote, and solidifying a shared of, of, a, a sense of shared nationhood. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the role of radio as a sort of social tool, as well as a, a technology of uh, voice reproduction and sound reproduction? Yeah, uh, so with the radio, um, I mean, so much of of radio, the the history of radio, as I was looking at, you know, different comparative histories of radio in different places. I mean, so much of it is determined by the, um, the you know the the role of of capital, the role of the state, uh, because it is a very capital. I mean, certainly in those days. Uh, I mean, now it's not, but I mean, anybody can do a podcast, but, um, but in those days, you know, uh, like radio broadcasting, sending out an oral, an audio, um, con- sending out audio content to a large number of people was a very capital intensive. Um, and so, uh, Japan almost went the the path of commercial broadcasting in that originally the idea was to solicit applications for licenses, broadcasting licenses from existing commercial concerns. And the, the concerns that were mainly interested were the newspapers, I think for obvious reasons. Um, but there were so many, uh, there, you know, there were so many applications and the process of of, you know, deciding who gets licenses and who doesn't, it became so contested that um, that basically the decision was made to create sort of semi-governmental radio stations in each city, just one in each city. And, um, you know, and they were also very concerned that the state, the Ministry of Communications was very concerned about, uh, you know, potentially politically problematic content being broadcast over the radio. So they, uh, you know, they, they gave these, these uh, city stations uh, some autonomy, but there was also a, a censorship regime put in place pretty early, and um, uh, you know, and there was there was a kind of uh, 
I guess, loose control even over some aspects of day-to-day decision-making. But that situation um, pretty quickly already started to displease um, the powers that be. And so what wound up happening um, after, uh, now I forget exactly when it happened, but um, we're talking around a year, a little more than a year, um, the Ministry of Communications just decided to consolidate all of the separate urban stations into uh, what we now know as as NHK, Nippon Hoso Kyokai. Um, And that also then consolidated uh, a, a much firmer kind of centralized control of broadcasting and of content. Um, and the uh, heads of those stations were basically fired uh, and replaced by uh, bureaucrats who were appointed by the Ministry of Communications. So Japan, in very short order, they went from sort of toying with the idea of having a kind of commercial broadcasting free-for-all, which was what happened in the U.S., um, to having uh, you know, a very sort of tightly controlled centralized state. Uh, well, I wouldn't call them state, you know, a state broadcaster, but but essentially they were, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot that they could do that was not under the control of the state. Um, and so then, you know, they're, they're competing kind of interests and priorities. On the one hand, um, the state doesn't want any content that's going to be politically problematic or, uh, you know, sort of uh, injurious to public morals or anything like that. But at the same time, um, these radio stations are operating on a subscription model, um, which, you know, with NHK is still, uh, I believe, still in effect that, you know, you have to pay this uh, subscription fee. Um, and so the, the broadcasters had to sort of walk this fine line between keeping the ministry censors happy uh, and giving listeners what they wanted, because if you didn't give listeners what they want, they wouldn't, um, you know, they wouldn't pay for their subscriptions. I mean, they wouldn't buy radios to begin with. And so they, you know, tried to create a mix of programming which uh, addressed a lot of different um, needs and constituencies. So there was news, of course. There were weather reports. Um, there was some music, uh, although not as much as we generally associate with radio as a medium. Um, but there was also, uh, you know, sports broadcasting. There was uh, radio drama, which I go into in depth in the next chapter. Um, and, uh, there were also things like, uh, radio exercise, Radio Taiso, which, uh, is also one of these things from the early days of radio that's still around. Um, and so in, in that sort of middle part of the, after giving a kind of mini history of the, the, the arrival of radio, I, I talk first about, uh, radio exercise and how that serves as a sort of subtle, way of um, inculcating a kind of, you know, communal sensibility because, you know, you do it as a group. Um, And that was actually something that was uh, a a kind of Japanese addition because the first, the idea for radio exercise was actually, um, it it came from the Metropolitan 
life insurance company in the United States, and there were some Japanese uh, ministry bureaucrats who, you know, went. They regularly went on these kinds of fact-finding missions to other countries to see, you know, what was being done with different technologies, with different media, and uh, you know, among other things. I mean, I mean, you know, there were constitutional fact-finding missions and, and other things, but. Um, but uh, the, the radio exercise was actually an idea that came from um, the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, and it was something that you know, was, was being done uh, by some broadcasters in the United States. But in the United States, it was, it was a solitary activity. So you would just sort of like, you would be in your home, you would listen to radio exercise on the radio, you would do your calisthenics or whatever, you just, you know, and then it would be done. Um, but it was you know, the, 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 the Japanese bureaucrats and the, the broadcasting authorities, they had the idea, well, let's not just do this at home. Let's make this a communal activity. Um, and, you know, so it's a, it's, it's a way of a kind of creating a lived habit of doing things together, um, but also of obeying, you know, the voice that's telling you to uh, do this or that. And, you know, if you make it a daily ritual, uh, or or twice daily ritual or whatever it does, um, I think it does do a certain kind of, uh, of of ideological labor at the level of muscle memory, which um, you know I think is worth worth sort of thinking about. Yeah, that's uh, I, I like that idea of ideological uh, work in, in, at least at the level of of muscle memory. Um, that's something I'll, I'll I'll definitely be thinking about after we we get off the podcast here. Um, so I'm still trying to get over uh, what you said at the beginning about anybody could do a podcast. I'm I'm a little hurt, uh, but, but we'll, we'll just move on from there. Um, I just want to yeah, so I wanted to um, talk about the other thing that you do go into depth uh, about in this chapter, which is sports broadcasting um, as a particular. Uh, kind of broadcasting, especially uh, as it relates to both nation and body in this context of sound and technology. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about um, what was special about sports broadcasting in these contexts. Well, what was special about sports broadcast? Well, there were a couple of things. I mean, one is, uh, you know, there's a certain kind of emotional and affective energy that that uh, gets gets built up, right? That there's certain electrical charge to sporting events because they're they're dramatic because they unfold in real time. You don't know how they're going to end. Uh, there's there's a, a rivalry, you know. You might even say a battle. Um, and uh, and importantly, I mean, people who you know listen to sports or watch sports, they also tend to take sides, right? You you root for one team or another, and so there's this kind of sense of identification of participatory identification in terms of the the listening to or viewing of sporting events which again does a kind of ideological work right that you are you're sort of subsumed within a crowd um i mean if you're there live at the sporting event but even if you're just alone you know in front of your television or next to your radio um you're identifying with a group you know you're you're identifying with other people who are, you're, well, you're identifying with the team that you're rooting for, but you're also identifying with the people who are also rooting for your team. Um, and, you know, so there's this, so, so there are all of these elements which are very charged. Uh, there's, 
there's the the kind of the immediacy uh, of live broadcasting. There's the the sort of the agonistic and antagonistic elements of of rivalry and battle. Uh, and there's a sense of identification with a group, um, and so that's something that was that was new actually. And because you know, because of the censorship uh, protocols that were in place, um, there was originally you know some sort of hesitation about even doing sports broadcasting because it's like okay, you know, this is unfolding in real time. You have an announcer; he's got a live mic, right? And uh, you know could say anything really. Um, so they, they had a system in place where there was a ministry censor who was like sitting right next to the, you know, the sports broadcasters, like ready to shut it down at any moment. If, if, you know, the announcer said anything problematic. Um, but, uh, but, you know, over time, I think, and especially when it started, you know, when it came to, um, international competition, in terms of, well, in the, the example that I look at is the Olympics, uh, particularly uh, the 1936 Olympics, uh, where there was one sporting event, uh, the 200-meter breaststroke, uh, which uh, had a very, very, you know, sort of dramatic outcome, but was also dramatic in terms of the fact that it was broadcast live late at night in Japan. And... Um, commanded something like a national audience of people, uh, hundreds of thousands, millions. I, I, I don't know the exact number of people who listened to the broadcast, but it was a large number uh, throughout the country of people who were listening to this broadcast in real time. Um, and how, you know, that kind of real-time participation in an international sporting event really did a great job of um, solidifying the sense of national identification, which is not to say that it needed, you know, any more kind of, uh, you know, any, any more pushes in that direction. I mean, it, this work had already been done and was still being done. Um, and certainly by 1936, there was no question about this sense of a, of a, of a sense of you know, national consciousness and, and national belonging and identity. But to have it take place in real time in, you know, in a far off place, um, in a competition with a country that was in some respects an ally, but at the same time, you know, a country that because of its, of the ideology that was, um, that, that was ruling the country at the time, you know, kind of looked down upon Japan uh, because of various kinds of racial and racialist beliefs. Um, you know, it was, it was a very powerful galvanizing moment, uh, which, uh, I mean, that particular broadcast was, was especially powerful and galvanizing, but just the broadcasting of the Olympics all told was, you know, was something that, um, again, did ideological work uh, and helped, you know, serve the purposes of nationalism, as arguably, you know, these Olympic broadcasts still do today. Yeah, I, I think this was a, a particularly, you know, strong um, example of the ways that uh, sound works um, somewhat as, you know, Benedict Anderson famously argued about print media, um, as a, as a kind of catalyst for the imagination of national community. Um, and I liked the, the, the idea that there was this, 
um, particular element to that, uh, that, you know, in modern nation building that came through sound. And, you know, again, I think radio is a, a really strong example of that in, in the book. Um, and you, you stick with uh, radio in uh, chapter five. And as you've sort of hinted already, this is your chapter about uh, early Japanese radio drama. Um, so this chapter called Ghostlier Demarcations, Keener Sounds, um, looks specifically at radio drama um, as a, a radically new genre uh, enabled by this medium of broadcast radio um, and one that had a very, very short sort of golden age. Um, and one of the interesting themes of the chapter um, for me was that uh, was the theme of, of sound effects and voice acting, um, which you argue were sort of different for radio dramas and early sound cinema. Um, and this is related to questions about verisimilitude and about the sort of reproduction uh, of um, of sound. Um, can you tell us more about some of the early developments of uh, radio drama um, and maybe touch on sound effects uh, if you'd like to? Sure. Um, radio drama is, it's one of these things that, you know, there's a certain kind of geographical distribution of how, uh, you know, popular it, it is and how popular it was. Um, and uh, if you look, for example, at Germany, I mean, that's one place where radio drama uh, for, for a long time and still today is taken very seriously as uh, you know, as a dramatic art and and as a literary art, and it's one of the things that you know many even well into the seventies and eighties, well known um, writers, novelists, and short story writers, you know, or dramatists, of course, as well, um, kind of tried their hand at. Uh, so I'm you know kind of I was interested in the ways in which this this drama, radio drama as as a genre. Um, afforded opportunities for different kinds of experimentation uh, with with dramaturgical, you know, ideas and and practices, um, and uh, so I look at the the sort of the early practitioners of the form in Japan, um, and. I guess one of the, the arguments that I make, and and it's not an argument that I, you know, it's not really a hill that I want to die on, but um, but I was influenced by some of the the Japanese scholarship, which uh, kind of came to the conclusion that the early attempts at radio drama in Japan were not, um, I guess, entirely successful in terms of really making use of the medium of the possibilities of the medium, um, and that. That would that would come later. Uh, that you know, in some cases, it wouldn't really start happening until the post-war period, which was really the golden age uh, of radio drama in Japan. Although the radio drama begins as early as radio does in the mid 1920s. Um, so I talk a little bit about the debates and the discussions that took place in print media um, because very few uh, radio dramas actually survive from the time. They were broadcast live and they were not recorded in most cases. Um, so I had very little uh, actual dramas to listen to. So I was, I was looking at the, the, the written scripts for the dramas and then I was also looking at um, things that you know, different uh, critics and writers wrote about, uh, wrote about radio drama and the, the debates that they had about um, the uses of the medium. Or the uses of the genre, I should say. 
Um, so you had some people like Osanai Kaoru, uh, the famous uh, pioneer of uh, Shingeki, Western-style naturalistic drama. Uh, and he argued that radio drama, it had to be very, the, the dialogue had to be uh, the most important element it had to be foremost and it had to be very clear and easily understood because if you know you're just listening to the dialogue you're just listening to a play you don't have anything to look at um, if you mishear something and you know it's a live broadcast you're, you could completely get lost in what's going on there were other people who um, uh, not generally not as famous as Osanai Kaoru but you know, other people who were saying, well, actually, you know, maybe we should look more in the direction of things like sound effects and soundscapes and using uh, sound creatively to do things like create atmosphere and, um, uh, you know, create a sense of place, a sense of the environment, uh, even, you know, to kind of represent nature, you know, to sort of bring nature as, as something tangible into these dramas. Um, and that debate, you know, kind of played out and there were, there were people who tried different approaches, uh, to, to the, to the genre. Um, but I think most, most of the Japanese scholars who've studied early radio drama, they, they sort of feel that there were a lot of missed opportunities. And, um, I, I kind of tend to go along with that, uh, with that appraisal. Um, but I did get very interested in this idea of sound effects as uh, the certain, you know, um, plus alpha, the, the thing that makes radio drama different from uh, stage drama and kind of dug deep into the history of uh, sound effects uh, artisanship, I guess you could say. It was a very... Um, you know, close-knit community. There weren't a lot of these people, um, but they were very, you know, fiercely dedicated to their craft. And uh, they, you know, some of them came from traditional theater. Some of them came from kabuki, you know, which has its own uh, often very ingenious uh, and, and, you know, sort of beautiful sound effects. Um, but some of them were, you know, just sort of recruits who learned from the ground up. They just started with radio. And, um, and, you know, one of the things that was sort of, that came up again and again, that was kind of interesting was they talked about how sound effects, uh, are most effective if they, well, well, let me rephrase it. They basically were, were talking about how, um, the best way to get something to sound like something is not to use the sound of the thing itself, but to, you know, to use something else, right? So that, you know, they would try to recreate the sounds of different kinds of objects uh, and, and they would use the objects themselves, but then somehow the, the, the sound of the object itself wasn't quite legible over the radio because of the sort of limited bandwidth, you know, the, the sort of the narrow range of frequencies that could be reproduced over the radio. Um, and so, you know, they talk about how you need to use other things to really have a convincing sound effect that, that really kind of captures the sound, but isn't really made by the thing itself. Um, and that, you know, that really kind of exercised my, my imagination in terms of uh, this question of realism, of verisimilitude, of, well, 
how do we, you know, how do we know that something is what it is? How do we identify something as being realistic? How do we identify a sound effect as realistic? If the most, you know, quote unquote, realistic and believable sound effects are things that are, you know, sounds that are made by objects other than the objects they're meant to represent, then what is sonic realism? And the difference between, you know, radio drama and uh, sound effects and particularly early sound cinema in Japan, um, because if you look at sound effects today and, and you know, how it's done, I mean, there, well, first of all, there's a lot of digital manipulation, but if you go back to the sort of classic era of, of acoustic sound effects, uh, like, you know, Star Wars, I mean, uh, you know, there, there, there was a lot of creativity in terms of using objects to, to sound like other objects and also using objects to sound like things that didn't exist, you know, like lightsabers and what have you. Um, but in, in the early, you know, sound recording in Japan, there wasn't a lot of that kind of, uh, I mean, in early sound film, um, there was this, you know, there was more of just sort of on location recording. And then if you would do, you know, after recording, uh, you, you know, you would, you would use sound effects that, um, you know, sometimes were, were taken from the objects they were meant to represent. Sometimes we're using sound effects tricks that were developed by, uh, by the people in radio drama. Um, but the argument that I make there is that, uh, and, and this is building also on arguments made by Michel Chion, is that with, uh, with cinema, what you have the visual um, element that's reinforcing. So there's this kind of mutual reinforcement between the sound and the visual object. So that even if the object doesn't really sound that convincing, that realistic in a sound film, and especially in those days, you know, the, the sound quality was not that great to begin with. So people didn't have very high expectations. It doesn't matter that much because you are also seeing the object. So the, the visual and the auditory, they, they reinforce each other. Um, whereas in the case of radio drama, you don't have the visual cues, you just have the sound. And so the sound effects have to be very, very uh, legible. They have to be very convincing. Uh, and, and in a sense, they have to be realer than real. Yeah, this, this last point that you're making about the sort of realer than real nature uh, of the, the sound effects and these questions about sort of sonic realism, as I think you put it, um, you know, reminded me, it sort of dovetailed in a, a little bit with some of the, the discourses that I had read personally um, about the genesis of sound effects in um, American cartoons and this sort of question of what, const, you know, how to... Uh, create in, in the same way that cartoons are creating a new physics very often they're also creating these sounds which don't exist but have to sound as if they would if they did exist and so all these questions of sonic right. realism I thought were very interesting because they have I think they travel very well um, and you stick with uh, uh, you know um, film which I think you start to talk about in five uh, a little chapter five a little bit you get into that much deeper in chapter six sound and motion um, specifically you're talking about the early years of sound film um, and the accompanying questions of diegetic and non-diegetic sounds which some of which we've been talking about already um, but one of the most striking arguments you, you made in this chapter is that well before sound came to the movies the movies came to sound can you elaborate on that for us well, there was a lot of sound being made, uh, even in the silent era. I mean, particularly in Japan, where you had the the, the practice of benshi, you know, of katsudo benshi, who were film narrators uh, who would 
you know, provide live narration to silent films. Um, and then, of course, you had uh, a lot of music, live musicians. Um, sometimes you would have recorded music uh, accompanying, uh, you know, silent cinema. Um, but then even before the, the arrival of, of sound cinema proper, um, you did have certain kinds of other sound sort of tie-ins. Uh, and you also had what were called partial talkies, uh, where you might have some musical accompaniment, but but maybe not so much dialogue. Um, so this this idea of of a theme song uh, or theme songs that accompanied certain uh, you know that would that that would be part of the marketing package of a film. So you would have this kind of cross-platform marketing strategy where you would have a film that would have a theme song, and then so you try to sell tickets to the film, but then you would also uh, record the theme song and then, you know, sell uh, recordings of the theme song and other music. Um, you also had uh, recordings of Benchy performances that were, you know, that were sold, recorded and sold before the arrival of sound film. So you would have people who would enjoy the Benchy performances without the accompanying, you know, experience of watching the film. Um you know that they 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 would they would just listen to the recording without watching the film just to enjoy uh the performance of the benshi on its own um so that whole kind of uh you know the the, the that, that that whole kind of infrastructure of of a multimedia strategy um and the fact that even silent cinema was never really silent um you know, anywhere really, because people just didn't, for whatever reason, didn't really enjoy just sitting in a silent, you know, space watching, uh, just watching the images. But particularly in Japan, I mean, that just really didn't fly. Uh, there had to be some sort of auditory accompaniment, um, first live and then with with the coming of sound uh, on the optical track of the film itself. But um but yeah, that's that's what I meant by that. That that even before uh, the arrival of sound film, uh, you know, silent cinema was was a, was a sonically very rich experience, and then that experience left. You know, it went beyond the the movie theater and uh, extended into uh, uh, recordings and other things. Yeah, um, thank you for for clarifying that because I think it it just was something that I had, um, you know, as somebody who does sort of Japanese you know, cultural history, and now I'm doing some history of science and that sort of thing. Um, I felt like I knew something about Japanese cinema, and when I read that passage, I was just completely taken aback. And then you explain it really nicely, um, and so I think I think that's really a, a great um, uh, point that you're making there. Um, you, you also talk. And I think this gets sort of back to some of the arguments you're really making um, about orality back in chapter one. Um, you, you talk, and also connects with chapter five as well, but you talk about the invention of natural and realistic dialogue for uh, the talkies once they come, especially the on-screen language for period dramas. Um, and so I think this is, to, to me, it seemed like it was a very sort of conscious invention of tradition in which you have to sort of standardize, create and standardize a kind of dead language um, for film going audiences that um, is sort of legible uh, in, and that acknowledges 
um, differences across space, time, class, etc., but is still uh, legible to film-going audiences in modern and increasingly, you know, slowly but increasingly homo- homo- homogenizing modern uh, Japan. So, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, sort of invention of a film language? Yeah, the uh, the invention. I was I work as a as a uh, in addition to my day job as a professor. I work uh, freelance as a translator, and one of the things that I've been most busy with uh, as a translator is film subtitling. Um, so I do uh, subtitles for many of the Japanese films that are uh, released by the Criterion Collection. Um, and I've actually done over a hundred at this point. Um, and of course I've done a fair number of, um, period films of Jidaigeki. Um, and over the years translating those films, um, you sort of have to learn the language, you know, you, even if you have studied Japanese, uh, you know, modern spoken Hyojungo, you know, Japanese, um, you start watching these period films and uh and you're not really prepared for a lot of what they throw at you you know they use a lot of um archaic terms you know terminology for one but then there are also these you know slightly archaic um uh sort of grammatical features i mean it's basically modern japanese grammatically speaking but but they throw in you know some archaic uh sort of pronouns and things like this uh, so I had to go through the process of learning that language, uh, doing that work of translating the films, uh, the, you know, the subtitles for the films. And, and then I got really kind of curious about, well, okay, where does this, this language come from, right? Because I've, I mean, I've studied classical Japanese, uh, you know, the classical written language. Um, and it's certainly not that, I mean, you're not hearing bungo in, uh, in these jidaigeki. Um, so I started, you know, kind of digging and, and I realized that this is a question that not many people have really kind of delved into, including, you know, film scholars and, and, uh, you know, historical linguists. I mean, not many people have sort of tried to, um, uh, you know, kind of chart this history and, you know, think about, okay, how was this done? You know, who, who did it? Why were they doing it? Um, and my treatment of the topic certainly is not, is not comprehensive. So I hope that, you know, uh, other people will, uh, will pick up this, this, this topic and do more with it. Um, but but yeah, I started thinking about this and and you know sort of diving into uh, film magazines and you know trying to find some some discussion about this of people talking about like what were they thinking you know when they were coming up with this language because they really did have to invent it they weren't inventing it from scratch they had some um, you know they had some examples uh, some templates to work with so they draw upon kabuki theater the language in kabuki they draw upon to some extent uh uh kodan you know narrative storytelling they draw upon to to a large extent to the um uh period novels to jidai shosetsu which became a very popular genre um in the first decades of the 20th century so you know they've got these uh they've got these templates and examples to work with, you know, Kabuki, Jidai Shosetsu, Kodan. 
Um, but they have a problem, which is that, you know, I mean, most people by the 20th century, most people who go to Kabuki are not, uh, they're not necessarily your typical theater goer in terms of their level of education, especially when you consider that Jidaigeki, that the films were very popular among children, right? So you have children who are a big part of the audience for Jidaigeki. How do you use a language which has this kind of period feel and period flavor, but that is going to be understood in real time by an audience which is not necessarily, um, you know, an audience of kabuki or kodan aficionados or not even necessarily people who read period novels, right? So they had to kind of, you know, draw from these sources and then create a simplified version of, you know, the sort of archaic language. But they also had to create a kind of homogenized archaic language um, because they couldn't, you know, it was hard enough just coming up with that period language without having to think about all sorts of, you know, regional variations and, you know, different kinds of uh, classes and castes in, in Edo society and, you know, um, and things like that. Although you do see that, I mean, you do hear that variation, obviously, if you have a character who's a daimyo, they're not going to be speaking the same language that, um, you know, that a peasant character speaks, but you do, you do have to, uh, you know, come up with, uh, with a sort of standardized homogenized language that, that has some variation based on class, but that isn't going to be, you know, too, historically richly accurate because then your audience is not going to understand what they're hearing. Um, and, you know, they're not going to be able to like look it up in reference books while they're watching a film. Um, so that was, that was their brief, I guess you could say. They had to come up with a language that had this period flavor, uh, but that would also be readily intelligible by, um, you know, very, you know, wide range of education levels in the audience and also that would be deliverable, that could be performed by performers, by actors who themselves, uh, in many cases, had not even completely mastered standard Japanese, you know, who had not completely mastered uh, Kyojungo, that, you know, they were coming from, um, uh, you know, different provinces and things, and they still had uh, echoes or vestiges of their regional dialects in their spoken language. Um, so it was, it was quite challenging for these screenwriters to come up with a language that met all of those, you know, met all of those requirements. Uh, and they didn't, I mean, always succeed a hundred percent, but they, you know, they had to make compromises. Um, but, but that was sort of how the, how that language came into being. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think this was, uh, in the the sort of invention of this uh, language of you know in particular the Jidai Geki these period films um, was a great example uh, of the way that um, sound you know changes the sort of memory scape of modern Japan in this case it's kind of almost inventing a memory scape right where there's a um, the creation of a sense of uh, shared history and a shared past through a shared language which wasn't right. Uh, and so I found that particularly sort of fascinating. And I think this is something that's happening in the diegetic sound that, you know, it, it, uh, mirrors and echoes some of the things that are happening, uh, with sound and nationalism more generally, and also your sort of discussion of, um, uh, sound effects in chapter five. Um, you also talk a little bit about, uh, 
the non-diegetic sound in film, um, film soundtracks. I wonder if you want to address that as well. Yeah, I wanted to also, I mean, because I'm, I'm coming from a music background, I wanted to um, bring questions of music back into the discussion. So in a sense, you know, the, the, this, the final chapter on film sound is kind of calling back or, or, you know, recapitulating some of the, the topics, the themes that came up in the first couple of chapters um, uh, in terms of sort of standardization of language, uh, of, a, of a kind of national language, um, but also in terms of questions of music. Uh, and in terms of the soundtrack, I focus primarily, um, almost exclusively, really, exclusively, really, on the writings of uh, a, a critic named Nakane Hiroshi um, and do a close reading of of his work, uh, sort of theorizing film soundtracks, film music as a uh, distinct um, form, as a distinct form of music. Um, and as far as I could tell, as far as I could find, he was actually the first person writing in any language who wrote a, like a book length uh, treatise on the topic. Um, and, and that I thought was, you know, a kind of, you know, one of those, uh, sort of cases of somebody who's outside of the Euro-American, you know, kind of orbit of cultural reference of somebody who was really quite early to the game in terms of really thinking about these questions in a, in a, um, in a kind of, I guess, you know, rigorous way. Uh, just being unknown and being overlooked. So part of what I was trying to do was to try to give him his due as somebody who recognized pretty early on uh, that film music wasn't going to be just like any other music, that it had certain um, you know, specific requirements, uh, certain kind of aesthetic challenges, uh, and who really thought about that in a sustained and, and systematic manner. Well, Dr. Yassar, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, talk with us uh, today about your book. Um, and I've really enjoyed having the chance to talk with you about it. Um, and I wonder if you have anything uh, currently uh, in, in, in the pipe, something you know for current project, future project, uh, what are you up to these days? I know it sounds like with just, just with subtitling and teaching and, every, and researching, you must be terribly busy, but... Uh, well, I'm working on a, uh, and I'm actually pretty well along on a project which uh, focuses on film, and I'm, uh, it's it's kind of uh, again. I mean, you you sort of mentioned the eclecticism of of this book, um, and I I think I just have a some sort of uh, you know addiction to to sort of eclectic projects, but. Um, what I'm trying to do in this project is two things. I mean, one thing that I'm trying to do is look at uh, film acting as a as a distinct practice in Japan and sort of uh, provide uh, a kind of concise history of film acting in Japan, um, uh, which is something that I don't think is a topic that's really been done justice yet uh, in English language scholarship. Um, so to to sort of have that historical uh, narrative, but at the same time, I'm 
very interested in questions of uh, representation of the of the body, representations of bodies, uh, and performance, and how those two things, how representation and performance, work together. Um, especially at the level of the kind of collaborative relationships that are really the the heart and soul of, of filmmaking. Um, so looking at the relationships of directors and specific performers and how those relationships inform the performances and how uh, you know certain directors have certain signature um, ways of, of, of representing bodies, of, of having bodies on screen interact, uh, and also of, of uh, creating a kind of philosophy of the body uh, through images in film. So that's, uh, that's the current project, and um, I can't uh, promise any, any like uh, delivery dates, uh, but I, I hope to finish it up in the next couple of years. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I'll be really looking forward to it. And I think it's a, a fascinating sort of de- departure uh, from your emphasis on sound, but I can certainly see how it comes out of your interest in uh, performance and the performing arts. Um, and I guess that uh, acting, obviously, there's a large sound component, so I guess maybe it's not that much of a departure after all. Um, anyway, so I'll be looking forward to, to to that, and when the book comes out, we'll see you back here on the podcast, I assume. Uh, I'd love to. And let me just say, when I said that anybody can do a podcast, I didn't, I didn't mean that literally anybody can do a podcast and do it well. Uh, I mean, I, I think some people do it much better than others. I, I just meant to say that in terms of the obstacles to entry, in terms of, you know, the equipment you need to get and the affordability of that equipment and things like that, that, you know, it was, uh, there was a difference there, but I, I greatly enjoyed, uh, this conversation. Thank you so much. Great. Yeah, that was great. And by the way, your, your comment was hundred percent clear. I was just, just joshing with you. Um, okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much again. Uh, and it's been a pleasure talking with you. Same here. Thank you very much. <laughs>